Hey, thanks for joining us online. Couple quick announcements as we get started. First of all, there's some additional resources on our website. So as after this service is over, I just want to remind you, jump on to newlifecc.com, download those resources. There's small group resources, there's devotional stuff, there's kids, there's stuff for your kids as well. So check that out. Uh, also, if we can pray for you, church, we love to be able to do that. You can text the word prayers with an S to 30500, and our staff will get those immediately. We love to be able to pray with you about what's going on in your life. And finally, this is your opportunity to give. I just want to thank you for your faithfulness through this really tough season. It's amazing how God is using your generosity. The information to give, if you're mailing it in, is on the bottom of your screen. Uh, also, you can go through our website or our app, again, newlifecc.com, and you can give online. That's how our family gives. It's the easiest way for us to stay consistent with our giving. So thank you for that. Hey, we're jumping into a new series. Pastor Dave kicked it off last week. And I want to remind you, the series is called God's Heartbeat. And it's moments for minutes. And the idea is, as we invest time into our relationship with God, he's going to lead us through some amazing moments in our life where we can look back and see his provision, his faithfulness, his love, his grace in our lives. And we're going to look at one of those today. So as we start, I want to share with you a moment that changed life for me. So the evening of November 4th, 2007, uh, everything in my life changed. If you had asked me that morning what my plans were for that day, I probably would have said something generic like, I'm going to get up early because I'm, I'm one of those crazy people that gets up at 4 or 4.30 every morning. Uh, if you're a sleep-in person, God bless you. You're a lot like my bride. But I'm one of those crazy people who gets up early. So I would have said, hey, I'm, I'm going to get up early. I'm going to go to the gym. Uh, I got a busy day at work. I've got a lot of things that I'm trying to get through. And then in the evening when I get home, I'm probably either going to work on a project. I like to build stuff, tinker with stuff, uh, or I'm just going to hang out with my wife and spend a quiet evening. Well, everything changed that evening on November 4th, 2007. My wife walked into the living room, and I can still remember it. I was sitting there on a couch. I was watching TV, and she walked into our living room, and she said the four words that none of us want to hear. November 4th, 2007, my wife looked at me and said, I want a divorce. And I remembered that feeling just coming over me going, I, I don't even know how to process what I just heard. You know, some of you have been in those crisis moments where life kind of overwhelms you in that moment. For some of you, it's been a situation like mine. Maybe it's the end of a long-term relationship, and it was that moment when you knew it was over. For some of you, maybe it was sitting in front of a doctor and you got the test results back and you were hoping that they weren't going to be serious and in that moment you heard the doctor say it's cancer. Maybe for some of you it's the end of a job through this COVID time and for no reason on your end, the company that you worked for no longer exists. Maybe it's something else, but all of us have had some of those crisis moments in our lives where our world just gets turned completely upside down. And in those moments, whether we're people of faith or whether we're not people of faith, we tend to ask a very tough question, and that question is, God, where are you in the middle of my pain? Now, I want to look this morning at a passage of Scripture that I think speaks 
very boldly into that question. So if you've got your copy of God's Word, I want to invite you to turn to Isaiah chapter 40. Now, Isaiah is an Old Testament book. The Bible is divided into two parts. There's the Old Testament, which is from creation to Christ. And then there's the New Testament, which is from Christ through the beginning of the early church. So Isaiah is in the Old Testament. It's about halfway through your copy of God's Word. If you've got a paper copy like me and you're in Psalms, Proverbs, keep going to the right. Uh, if you've got a digital copy, just go to the table of contents and you'll find on there Isaiah. So Isaiah chapter 40. Now as you're finding Isaiah 40, let me set up the context of what's going on before we read this passage together. So Isaiah chapter 40 is actually kind of this pivotal turning point in the book of Isaiah. The nation of Israel has been taken captive by a group of people called the Babylonians, which is what is modern day Iraq. And it's about 580 B.C. when this particular passage of Scripture is written. And what's going on is the Babylonians have conquered the nation of Israel. So many of the families have been split apart and some of them taken into captivity in Babylon. Some of them have been killed. So their friends, their family, their relatives, they've literally been splintered as a nation. And so this group of people that is living now in the nation of Babylon, which is modern-day Iraq... They're crying out to God, going, God, have you forgotten about us? Have you left us? What, what happened here? Don't you care about the pain that is going on in our lives right now? Now, Isaiah, who's the writer of this particular book, was a prophet. And a prophet was somebody who spoke God's truth and God's words to the people. They didn't have the scripture like we have today. They had God's communication through his prophets to his people. So Isaiah is literally answering back God's words to God's people. And where we're going to pick up is Isaiah chapter 40 and verse 27. So if you've got your copy of God's word, I want you to turn there with me. And let's read through this together. Isaiah 40 begins with God speaking back to the nation of Israel saying, Why do you say, O Jacob, and complain, O Israel? Now, it's not two different groups of people. If you remember from Pastor Dave's message last week, Jacob is one of the patriarchs of the nation of Israel. Remember, there was God called Abraham. Abraham had a son, Isaac. Isaac had a son named Jacob. So that's this Jacob. And his name actually meant heel grabber. Or deceiver. So he was, he was literally a slick guy and he's deceived or stole his birthright from his older brother. So God's referring back here, reminding the nation of Israel of their lineage and heritage and how God at one moment in Jacob's life stepped in and literally, the scripture says, wrestled with Jacob. It's in Genesis 32, if you want to read that story. And at the end of that wrestling time, God changed his name from deceiver to Israel, which means one who struggled with God. So as he begins to answer this question that the nation's asking God, where are you in the middle of my pain? He's reminding them of their history. And he says, uh, why do you say my way is hidden from the Lord and my cause is disregarded by my God? In other words, why are you saying to me that I'm ignoring you? The literal translation of that is God passed by without even looking. So he says, verse 28, don't you know, haven't you heard the Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He doesn't grow tired or weary, and his understanding no one can fathom. 
And then if you've seen these next couple verses, either on a, a plaque or a board, they may be familiar to you. He says in verse 29, he gives strength to the weary and increases the power of the weak. Even youths grow tired and weary and young men stumble and fall. But those who wait on the Lord will renew their strength. They will soar on wings like eagles. They will run and not grow weary and they will walk and not faint. So God is responding to this question that you and I ask, which is, God, where are you in the middle of my pain? And this question that the nation of Israel asked is, is God, do you not care that we're stuck in this moment where we're being abused and we're slaves and we're separated from our family and our friends have been killed? God, do you not even care what is going on in this moment? It's interesting, isn't it, how crisis tends to isolate you and I. And whether it is shame, where we don't want anybody to know what it is that we're struggling with, or it's ego, we should be able to get through this on our own, right? Or it's fear, if somebody knows that I'm going through a divorce, uh, they're not going to treat me the same. Or if somebody knows that I'm struggling with an addiction, they're going to treat me differently or they're not going to trust me anymore. So in some way or another, a lot of times in a crisis, what happens to you and I at church is we tend to isolate. We isolate from the people that love us and that we love, and we also isolate from God because we're wondering, God, do you not care in the middle of my pain? So what God does is he speaks back to the nation of Israel and he actually reminds them of some interesting things. So we're going to take a look through this passage and gain a perspective on God's heartbeat for us in those crisis moments. How do the minutes that we spend connecting with Jesus ultimately lead to moments of life transformation for you and I? So let's go back to the scripture together. And as we look at Isaiah chapter 40, Isaiah actually takes the nation of Israel, interestingly enough, back to the character of God as he begins to walk them through how God responds to us in crisis. And he says, um, Why do you say, my way is hidden from the Lord? In verse 28, Don't you know, haven't you heard? The Lord is the everlasting God. Now, he, he starts by reminding them that God is everlasting. And, and it may not make sense to us initially that Isaiah would take us back to the character of God to answer this question of God, where are you in this crisis moment? But hang with me, because the character of God has some amazing insight into how you and I can process crisis and pain in our lives. So he starts out with saying, don't you remember that God is the everlasting God? And what he's referring to there is this idea that God is all-powerful. The scripture in Revelation says that God is the Alpha and Omega. He's the beginning and the end. That he was and is and will always be. Literally, nobody created God. There's not a time in history where God did not exist. God has always and will always exist. God is eternal. Literally, God is all-powerful. So here's what that means to you and I, church, when we're in those crisis moments. It means that when, we're, when our lives are falling apart, God is still in control. Did you catch that? When, when our lives are falling apart in a crisis, it's important for us to remember that God is still in control. See, he was God before our crisis got started. He's God after our crisis is over, and he's still God in the middle of our crisis. 
So when Isaiah takes us back to the character of God, what he's trying to remind the nation of Israel and what he's trying to remind you and I, church, is when we're stuck in crisis and we're feeling isolated and separated from everything, it's important for us to be reminded of the fact that when our lives are in crisis, God is still in control. God's got you. God hasn't stepped away from you. God hasn't forgotten about you. He's still God in the middle of your crisis. And then he goes on and he says, not only is he all-powerful and he's still God, he says, he's the creator of the ends of the earth. Now, if you've studied in the scripture at all, the creation story, it's an amazing account of God speaking into existence over a six-day period everything that we know and understand. But he's not just taking us back to God's character as creator. What he's taking us back to is the fact that God created you and me with purpose and passion. Jeremiah 29, 11, God's speaking to the nation of Israel and he says, I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans to prosper you and not to harm you, plans to give you a hope and a future. In other words, church, because he's the creator God, he designed your life with a purpose and a mission and a plan for you. So when crisis hits, you and I in that moment, our life hasn't lost its purpose. We're not outside of the scope somehow of God's purpose or plan for our life. God is going to work through our pain to bring about his purpose and his plan. Ephesians chapter 2, the Apostle Paul is writing to the church in Ephesus, and he says this, he says, you and I are God's handiwork. Another um, interpretation of that word is masterpiece. And he said, you and I are God's masterpiece. God created us to do good works in Christ. And then he says, the things that God prepared in advance. In other words, before you or I were even born, God knew what was going to happen in our lives. So when Isaiah's taking people back to these character traits of God, he's reminding them in crisis, don't lose sight of the fact that God created and designed you with a purpose and a mission, and he is going to work through that crisis to bring about his purpose and mission in your life. Now the challenge that you and I have is that culture teaches a very different approach to life. See, culture teaches us this theory called evolution. And the theory of evolution is that somehow order, the world that we live in, was created out of chaos. Now, if you've ever seen a little two-year-old take his toy box and dump it upside down and shake it, you know order never comes from chaos. If you've ever seen one of those demolition experts blow up a building because they're, they're going to build something new there, you know that when that building gets blown up, chaos, order does not come out of that. The bricks don't stack themselves up. The metal beams don't stack themselves on the side. Chaos creates more chaos. But the theory of evolution that is taught in our schools and is believed in our world says that somehow you and I, out of chaos, order came and that we're actually the result of millions or billions of years of evolution that ultimately resulted in you and I. But evolution doesn't answer the question for us, what is the purpose of our lives? And so when crisis hits, if we're people who believe in the theory of evolution, we're left empty. Because evolution says my purpose is to find my own happiness. And when I don't find it, I get uncomfortable. And I find myself empty. Whereas when I'm reminded that the God is a creator God, he designed me on purpose, he spoke purpose and hope and mission into my life, then when I walk through crisis, what happens to me is I go, God's going to work through this moment. God still has a plan for my life. 
My life is not over. God's going to use this moment to bring about his purpose and mission. So he says, God's everlasting reminding us that when life is out of control, God's still in control. God is the creator of the ends of the earth, reminding us that God has a plan and a design, and he's working his purpose through our life no matter what is happening. And then he gets to the end of this, and he goes, hey, and God's understanding no one can fathom. In other words, God has a knowledge and an understanding about the moments of your life and of my life and a perspective that we simply don't have. You know, wouldn't it be awesome if you and I had a perspective of everything that occurred and it was perfect, right? And so whenever we walked into a situation, we knew what we were going to say. We knew how it was going to work out. Literally, hindsight being twenty twenty, we could perfectly navigate every scenario of life and know in advance what was going to happen. Can you imagine how amazing that would be for us, right? Well, that's what he's saying here about God. He's saying, hey, Israel, and hear this, church. This is for you, too. God has a perspective on your life that you don't have. And it's a perfect perspective. Literally, God knows in advance of you even being born. Psalm 139 says, before before I was, you knit me together in my mother's womb, and you knew me before I was even born. So God's understanding even on the crisis, church, that you and I are walking through, even maybe in this moment right now, is so much deeper and greater than your understanding and mine that what that means is we can lean back into God's faithfulness, God's power, God's understanding in that moment of crisis and go, God, I don't have to understand it. I just have to know that you know what happens. And you're going to work your purpose and your will for my life through this moment. So Isaiah takes us back to the character of God, and he starts there. And here's the reason that he does that. If you're taking notes, I want you to write this down, okay? Point number one is this. The stability, God's stability, the stability of God anchors the instability of my life. You got that? The stability of God anchors the instability of my life. So in a simple way, what Isaiah is doing is he's taking us back to the character of God. So he goes, when you're in the middle of the pain, you got something to hang on to. You've got a God who's all-powerful and he's still in control. You've got a God who created and designed you to live on purpose, and he's going to work through whatever your circumstances, and you can hang on to that. You've got a God who has a perspective on your life and this moment in your life that is so different to yours, you can trust his perspective because he knows everything that's going to happen. And what Isaiah tells us is that is our anchor to hang on to. So the stability of God anchors the instability of my life. And then he goes on beyond this passage and he says, um, not only do you have the character of God to hang on to, but he goes on a little bit further and he explains how, to, how do we do it in the moment. Because it's not just that we hang on to these ideas of Scripture. It's literally that we hang on to the person of Jesus. So beginning in verse 31, he says, Those who wait on the Lord will renew their strength. This idea of new strength that you and I don't automatically have. Now, this word wait is not the English word like you and I understand wait. And depending on your um, version of the scripture, you may actually have the word hope or trust. So those who hope in the Lord will renew their strength or those who trust in the Lord will renew their strength. 
But the most accurate word to what was originally written is this word wait. Now, in our English language, we understand waiting as we're going to kind of sit and hang out and wait on God to do something. But the word in the scripture for wait is actually this word to plat. Now, plat is this idea of weaving or twisting together. We might think of it as braiding together. So you take these different strands of hair and you braid them together, right? Now, if you've been here the last couple weeks at church, you know how windy it's been. And ladies, you did your hair and it looked beautiful and you came walking into church and the wind just blew your hair everywhere, right? But some of you came in with your hair pulled back in a braid and it didn't move even in the wind. That's this idea is that when you and I wait on the Lord, we literally bind ourselves together closely with the person of Jesus so that our stability of life comes from our connection to him. It's that I, this idea that every time I start to get anxious or nervous or fearful or filled with shame around a crisis that I'm going to, I go back to Jesus and I study and I hang on to and I plait myself together with him. If you've ever watched how ropes are made, they take a number of really skinny strands of rope and they weave them together and they twist them together. And what gives the rope its strength is all of those come together in one piece, bonded together. And from that, we get the strength of rope that we have. Even the straps, a lot of us use straps on our pickup trucks. Those straps are fibers woven together. That's this idea of plaiting that is in the scripture. So when he says, wait on the Lord, those of us who wait on the Lord, what he's actually saying is those of us that are brought back to the person of Jesus and connect deeply with him in our crisis, we get new strength. So here's what that looks like in a really practical way. What it means is when you and I are going through a crisis moment, we go back to the scripture and we're reminded of the character of God. We go back to the scripture and we're reminded of the faithfulness of God. We go back to the scripture and we're reminded of the power of God, the provision of God, God's love and his grace and his mercy and his redemption by going back to the scripture and digging into the truth and the person of Jesus Christ. And we hang on to that in our crisis. What it also looks like is that we spend time praying and asking God, God, will you, will you work in this situation? Will you give me peace in this moment? Will you give me wisdom to navigate this solution that I have? Will you work with me, God, to give me what I need to make it through this crisis? That's that idea of plaiting ourselves together with the person of Jesus. So if you're following along in your notes, I want you to write this down for your second point, okay? Crisis is my opportunity to connect deeply with Jesus, Crisis is my opportunity to connect deeply with Jesus. That idea of waiting on the Lord is that I drive more deeply into relationship with Christ and through his strength, I get new strength. Now also built into this idea of waiting is the concept that uh, you and I don't step ahead of God's timing. Now, I, I have a type A personality. I've shared this with you, church, before. I'm a very driven person, right? I'm a go, go, go. And so there have been times in my life where, honestly, I've just gotten tired of waiting for God's solution, and so I've come up with one on my own. You ever done that? 
You ever been just tired of waiting on God and you're like, God, I'm, I don't think you're going to do anything, so I'm going to step in and do it myself. Doesn't always work out good, does it? Well, this idea of waiting on God is not only this idea of immersing myself into the person of Jesus Christ and relying on his strength to carry me through. It's also this idea of not stepping in front of him and taking his role of leadership. If you studied the scripture, you know some of the characters that are in the scripture that had to wait. Right in the book of Genesis, you've got Noah where God called him to build the ark and Noah had to wait on God's timing to bring the floodwaters. You've got God calling out Abraham in Genesis chapter 12 and God called him out at age 75 and said, Abraham, I'm going to give you a son and from that son I'm going to make a nation and from that nation everyone in the world is going to be blessed. That's the nation of Israel, ultimately the birth of Christ that changed our world. But Abraham had to wait 25 years for God to bring about that promise of his son Isaac. And in those 25 years, Abraham got tired of waiting. And he had a son of his own. He made his own way to make it work. His son's name is Ishmael. When Abraham stepped out of God's timing, I'm sure it was probably out of frustration or feeling like God had forgotten. The end result is Ishmael is the forefather of the Arab nation. Isaac is the forefather of the Jewish nation. And for thousands of years, those two nations have been battling each other. Abraham didn't wait on God's timing. There's two books in the scripture that are named after women. The first one is Ruth. It's the story of this lady who's not even a Jew. She's actually from the land of Moab. And she ends up marrying a Jewish guy. Probably started off a lot like we did in our marriage relationship, happy, excited. Well, before long, her husband passes away. She loses everything. She ends up going back to the nation of Israel with her mother-in-law and starting over, literally picking up scraps of food to be able to make it. Well, she also had to wait on God's timing. The end of that story is incredible. She ends up getting married to a guy named Boaz, and they have a son who is the grandfather of the, first, or the second king of Israel named David, ultimately in the line of Christ. I imagine when she lost her husband, there was a lot of crisis questions that ran through. But God had a purpose and plan for her life and a timing that she didn't understand or know in that moment. And God took a broken situation and worked it out for his purpose. Esther is the other book in scripture. Now, she was born in slavery. She was born in captivity. She ultimately imagined, I imagine, she probably was like, God, why are you leaving me to be a slave? Why don't you take me out of this? Why don't you rescue our people? Well, God ultimately caused life to go in such a way that she became the queen of Assyria. And in becoming queen, she ultimately saved her entire nation. God's timing, God's purpose, God's will, but she had to wait on God's timing. So not only is it that we drive ourselves more deeply into the person and character of Christ, we also choose to wait on his timing. And then what happens, church, is God responds to us in several different ways, okay? And this is probably what you've seen on some kind of a picture or a plaque or a board or a screensaver, which is those who wait on the Lord will renew their strength. And what happens is God gives us this new strength that's not us initiated. The idea is a lot like a cell phone recharging, right? Life drains the battery of our strength and energy for the trials. And so when we plug ourselves into the person of Christ, when we plat ourselves together with him, he recharges us and gives us the energy to continue. 
And then God responds to us in some interesting ways. He says uh, three word pictures. Some of you are going to soar on wings like eagles. Some of you are going to run and not grow weary. And some of you are going to walk and not faint. And it's this beautiful picture of how God responds to us. Now, the first one is the soar on the wings like eagles. And it's this amazing idea. Obviously, our national bird is the eagle, right? And it's beautiful. And if you've ever been and seen an eagle, they are amazing, amazing animals. They're huge, too, by the way. They're, they're amazing, but they're huge. And if you've ever watched an eagle, they tend to uh, hang out on the tops of these hills or these, these crags or these rock formations or these tall trees. And when they take off, they spread their huge wings and they catch these thermal updrafts, which is where the wind is coming up from the valley up the mountain. And you can watch a huge, heavy, big eagle literally fly around for hours doing almost no work. So when Isaiah says, some of you are going to soar on wings like eagles, here's the picture that he's giving you. Some of you are literally going to stretch out and God is going to rescue you in that moment. He's going to lift you up. Right? Those thermal updrafts take those eagles from the valley floor all the way above the mountains. And the picture is that in some of our situations in our crisis, God is going to step in. He's going to lift us out of that. And if you're taking notes, here's what's going to happen. God's going to rescue me. God's going to rescue you, church. In some of those moments, God's going to step down and rescue you and lift you out of that crisis. But that's not the only way that God interacts with us in crisis. It also says you're going to run and not grow weary. It's this idea of getting a second wind. Now, I'm not a runner. I've never been a runner. Uh, I'm not built that way. I've had some friends that are runners. Uh, and the build for a runner seems to be tall, lean, and fast. And I'm not any of those things. The only thing that's streamlined about me is my head. So <laughs> it just cuts down on wind resistance. But I didn't run, but I decided I got talked into by some friends of mine doing a sprint triathlon. And the idea is that you swim a short distance, about a half mile. You get on a bike and you ride for anywhere from 15 to 20 miles. And then you run anywhere from three to five miles. And I was in my third sprint triathlon. And I had done the swim part, I'd done the bike part, I was about three and a half miles into my run, and at this point, I, I'm just in bad shape. I'm not running at all, I'm more like stumble walking, and I had slobber and spit and goo and Gatorade all over me, and uh, I, they probably thought I was going to die somewhere on the trail, it was not pretty. And I remember thinking to myself, I've got about a half mile to a mile left in this race, and Maybe I should just lay down and roll that last half mile to the end because I literally had nothing. Everything hurt. My legs were locking up. I was getting a cramp. And so I was like, I just want to lay down right here and roll the last half mile. There was no second wind on my end. And then I heard behind me the footfalls of a runner. And I thought, good, I'm not dead last in this race. And this person passed me, and on the way passing me, they slapped me really hard right in the butt. And I looked over, and it's this 80-year-old grandma who's passing me. And she looks over, and she goes, come on, big boy, don't quit. Now, at that moment, I got my second wind. I didn't care if I died trying to catch grandma. I was going to catch grandma. So I was done with energy a second before that. I got new energy. And I set my sights on grandma and I just reeled her in. 
was like, come on, Grandma. I'm going to get you. I'm going to take you. I'm going to beat you at the end. That's this idea of running and not growing weary. It means when you and I are in this crisis season and we're starting to get tired, God's going to give us that second wind to get through whatever that crisis is, to navigate that parenting challenge, to walk through that financial hardship that we're going through, to navigate that health issue or crisis. God's going to give us that second wind to get through that. Now, the sad part is Grandma beat me by about 10 feet. Never gotten over it. I'm in counseling right now for that. But the last way that the scripture tells us that God kind of walks and navigates with us. So first of all, God rescues us, right? We're going to soar on the wings like eagles. Second, God sustains us. If you're writing, fill that in. God sustains us. He gives us that second wind. The third way that he does this is he actually changes us. Because there are times, church, when uh, you and I are in a crisis and the crisis just keeps going. Right, we, we, we bounce from one crisis to the next crisis is what it feels like. And we're stuck and we can't run anymore. And we're asking God to change it. And interestingly enough, sometimes in those crisis moments, the answer to God, will you take this away, is no. There's this passage in 2 Corinthians chapter 12 where the Apostle Paul has asked God three times to take away this, this painful thing in his life. And every time God's response is, no, my grace is sufficient, my power is made perfect in your weakness. So sometimes, church, it's not that God lifts us out of our crisis. It's not that he gives us energy to run through and sustain in our crisis. It's that he doesn't change the crisis, he changes us. Did you catch that? He doesn't change the crisis. He changes us in the crisis. And here's what that means. It changes how I see the crisis. It changes how I think about the crisis. It changes out how I respond to the crisis. And I begin to learn and lean into Christ and say, God, um, I'm going to choose to rely on the lesson you're trying to teach me in this. What do you need to change in me, God, as I walk through this moment? That's what it means to walk and not faint. So sometimes God rescues us, sometimes God sustains us, and sometimes God changes us. Now when we started in our time this morning, or today, I shared with you a, a moment in my life, November 4th, 2007, where everything changed. And a year later, I sat down in my office and I, I journaled some thoughts about what God had done in and through. So uh, I'm going to be a little raw in the next couple of minutes, and I'm going to share my journal with you about what God taught me over that first year. So let me read this to you. I want a divorce. I remember hearing those four words and being unable to process what was happening to me. One year later, I sit in my office reflecting on my life and God's grace through one of the most difficult 12 months I've ever experienced. During the course of this year, I've become single again. I lost my job. I walked through stage four cancer with my 66-year-old father, and I lost a grandparent. These are a few of the lessons that I learned from God during that season. Lesson one, the sustaining love of God. With none of the normal life markers to base my identity upon, 
I was often overwhelmed by the love that I experienced from God. I always knew God loved me, but to experience that love in a state of true brokenness is unlike anything I'd experienced. There are many moments over this last year that I merely clung tightly to what the Scripture teaches about who God is and the faithful love of Christ. Moments of deepest sorrow were mirrored by a sense of incredible sustaining grace and internal peace. I'm beginning to understand the kind of love that is devoid of any worth or value on my part. Lesson number two, I never had control. Control is nothing more than a child's sandcastle waiting for the tide to wash it away. I've always been a planner and a goal setter. My mistake came in building a vision of my life based on what I could control. We can no sooner control our next moment than we can hold back the ocean. But we live in a culture that tells us we can, and I bought into that lie that I control the days and the events of my life. Lesson number three, strength through weakness. I've always been an athlete and a weightlifter. If I had a weakness, I trained harder to overcome it. If I lacked a skill or a talent, I learned, I worked, and studied until I overcame it. Weakness was nothing that I ever considered either a delight or a blessing. However, in my brokenness, God allowed my story and my situation to open doors of communication and healing, unlike any other time in my ministry. Lesson number four, it's okay to never understand. I may never understand why my life took such a radical turn, and that's finally okay with me. The plans for my life are ultimately God's plans, not my plans. God's view and my view of what it takes to make my life meaningful are often not the same. Broken vessels are cherished by God, but often discarded by us. Lesson number five, embrace truth, not guilt. Divorce can cause us to question every inch of who we are. I had to go through a process of separating and owning what was mine to own in the breakdown of my relationship. I asked myself a lot of hard questions. Some of them had answers that I didn't like. One of the greatest challenges for me has been addressing the truth of my own faults while getting lo without getting locked into a cycle of guilt. We cannot change our past. We can only experience the redemptive grace of God and allow him to work deep-seated change in our hearts. Learn from the past, but refuse to live under the label of your failures. Here's the opportunity that you and I have, church. We have the opportunity when we walk through pain, when we're asking the question, God, where are you in this moment in my life? We have our, this opportunity to literally weave ourselves, to plat ourselves in so deeply to the person of Jesus Christ that the minutes that we spend understanding God's heartbeat for us ultimately lead to moments of incredible transformation and change in our lives. But it happens when you and I choose not to pull away from this and this, but instead to lean into this relationship with Christ and this relationship with other people. Here's my challenge to you. What I shared with you today is part of my story. I can run from it. I can hide from it. I can ignore it, but it's part of my story. 
It's shaped the person I am today. You and I, church, have an amazing opportunity in front of us to literally dig into the person of Jesus and allow God to transform and change us even in the toughest moments of crisis. So here's my challenge. Inside of the notes that are part of what's online and available to you, uh, I want you to download those notes and those questions that go along with today's message because there's two links, two web links that I put in there for you. The first web link is takes you to a place that teaches you how to read and study the scripture. It gives you a lot of options. The second one is a link that takes you to a page that teaches you different ways that you can connect with God in prayer. Here's what I'm going to challenge you to do. This week, pick one way, one change that you're going to add into your daily practice that is going to help you plat or connect or weave your life more deeply in with connection with Christ. And then let God work his, his miracle in your life to change those things that he needs to change to make you the person that he's calling you to be. Let me pray for you. Father, in this moment as your church, we're all in different places. Some of us are, uh, have walked through tremendous pain and crisis and we're coming out on the other side. Some of us are about to walk into it. Some of us are already in it. Father, help us to understand your heart to connect with and walk through these moments with us. Give us the courage to connect with you and the willingness to dig deep into who you are and into your word and into your truth and into prayer with you so that we can walk through these things in a way that honors you. God, thanks for the chance to look at your word today. I pray a blessing on our church, and I thank you for this time we've had to study your word, and we pray this in your name. Amen. Hey, blessings, church. Thank you for taking the time to be with us uh, for this message. And I just want to encourage you, God's got a plan and a purpose for your life. Let's jump in together and experience what his plan is and see him work in some amazing ways. Blessings. Have a great week.